0: This is Mornings with Silly on nine eighty CKNW.
1: When it comes to the Cullen Commission, boy, yesterday those revelations were just Mind-boggling. If you've been following this story, and I know so many of you out there have, I mean, the whole reason why we even have this money-laundering inquiry is because of you. It's because people like you were just furious about what you saw happening and you wanted something done about it. You wanted the air cleared, so to speak, on this front. Well, that is the process that we're undergoing right now at the Cullen Inquiry. And so yesterday, Retired RCMP officer Fred Pinnock was testifying. This is the man who really blew the lid off all of this with stories talking to people like Sam Cooper and others about what was going on that really put this firmly, firmly in the public's eye. And so essentially what he said during his testimony yesterday was startling. So we're going to check in now with Sam Cooper, our global news investigative reporter, for more on that. Good morning, Sam. Good
2: morning. Good morning.
1: Boy, that testimony yesterday just uh, was unreal. Tell us about Fred Pinnock and what he had to say.
2: Right. uh, The the word bombshell is overused, but we can say with confidence there were a number of bombshells yesterday. Uh, People know a little bit about Fred Pinnock's story that have been following this. He was the former commander of that illegal gaming unit. He says he tried to expand his mandate and go into the casinos to target what uh, he knew was rampant organized crime. He had the confidential files showing him that. He says he was basically uh, shoved aside by senior RCMP leaders and uh, BC's gaming branch, which we know is controlled by upper levels of BC government. So he uh, he got frustrated. He went to the media with his uh, allegation there was willful blindness and at that point, uh, Cash Heed came out on TV and shot down Pinnock's comments. So we heard yesterday of uh, Pinnock having a private meeting with Mr. Heed in Victoria in 2009. He says he told Heed I just, uh, I I believe that Rich Coleman, who's the gaming minister, responsible at the time, knows what's going on in the casinos and uh, has to take some responsibility. According to Mr. Pinnock, Mr. Heed responded, you're right, Fred, it's all about the money. But I can't say that publicly. And furthermore, uh, it's alleged that he'd said Senior Mounties were puppets for Richard Coleman at the time. They were complicit in letting this organized crime launder money in B.C. casinos.
1: Okay, that's the bombshell right there. I couldn't believe that when I was following along yesterday. And these are the kinds of allegations and things, Sam, that really brought this whole story to light in the first place, aren't they?
2: They are. Uh, We've, you know, the media has been getting little bits and pieces of these sort of whistleblower allegations for years. Mr. Pinnock, in the media report about 10 years ago, made an allegation. But in bits and pieces, it's come out already in this hearing that from the casino staff... Uh, to the lottery corporation investigators all the way up the chain to management at the lottery corp there was not even an unwritten rule there was directions don't question these vips that are taking these massive cash deliveries of one hundred thousand dollars up to eight hundred thousand dollars from known alleged organized crime loan sharks do not touch them that's bad for revenue this is not just an allegation anymore. We have heard people in the hearing say, yes, I admit this happened. We broke money laundering rules because we wanted the revenue. So what we heard yesterday, really, I'm going to boil it down. What we heard was that went up allegedly right to the top of BC's government. That's the substance of the allegation. Now, we haven't heard from uh, Mr. Coleman. We, uh, we understand that he, he does want to make some response. And in the past, he strongly denied that allegation of turning a blind eye to gangs.
1: Right. So is he expected to testify at some point during this inquiry?
2: That's a total unknown. All, all we know is that he has, he has told global news. I'll have some sort of response. You can bet. <laughs> he hasn't said more than that. He's not on the witness list. Uh, we have, uh, went to Mr. Heat as well. And, uh, he said, I can't comment on those allegations at the time because really? I potentially could be a witness. So look, the, the ball is in the court of the Cullen Commission. Mr. Pinnock yesterday said, I don't have a tape recording of this alleged conversation. But look, uh, he basically said, why don't you call Cash Heed? So the ball is in the court of those Cullen Commission lawyers.
1: So it's been years, though, right, since we've heard from Fred Pinnock when he took those comments to the media. And yet during all that time, Sam, we haven't really heard anything from Rich Coleman about this.
2: We've we've heard a, a little bit here and there when we've had you know uh, Simi you remember I, I reported that there was a a report confidential that came out of uh, the the demise really of the illegal gaming unit that said allegedly an Asian organized crime figure right. owns a piece of a BC casino yeah. and yet this this was known this was put up the chain in BC's government and yet that. Pinnock's unit or former unit was cancelled. Mr. Coleman said uh, there's no substance to those allegations. Of course, we did everything we could to uh, responsibly administer uh, casinos in B.C.
1: So, Sam, given where we're at right now with the Cullen Commission, is it unfolding the way you suspected it would? Like, is is the testimony you're hearing pretty much corroborating what you had been told over the years?
2: Well, it is and more. Uh, You know, I, I can say I, I've been talking to some of the whistleblowers that, that helped uh, myself and other reporters get these stories. There's been a fear that the, the commission lawyers wouldn't go after what, what I'll just call the high hanging fruit, uh, and they wouldn't ask the tough questions. I have to say that they're asking tough questions of whistleblowers. They're really giving whistleblowers a, a rough ride in some cases. That's their job. And they're, they're being, of course, they're being tough on the people that are facing allegations And I'll also add, there's a lot of people whose names I know that I read in confidential records. We're talking about the alleged high-level gangster side. Their names, some of them have already come out on the record. And we hear that uh, Mr. Paul King Jin, who is very central, allegedly, to this Mm organized crime scheme now has standing in the hearing. That's a shock to me. But look, the, the, the ruling made by uh, Justice Cullen was his name basically is coming up in all these allegations. Uh, he fairly should have some response.
1: All right. I know it's going to be another busy day. Sam, thank you so much for your time on this.
2: Thanks, Simi.
1: Sam Cooper, Global News investigative journalist, talking about some of these. as he puts it, bombshell allegations from the inquiry yesterday in regards to why this money laundering seemed to be happening so openly and brazenly in B.C. casinos. And according to the person who was testifying yesterday, Fred Pennock, he alleges that it went to the highest reaches of the B.C. government, that they were turning a blind eye to this.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Important to note, of course, that we've got Remembrance Day coming up next week, but it will be a different Remembrance Day. Although we don't want you to forget what we
3: normally do, we just have to do it a little bit differently. Our Nikki Wright Myers here with more on that this morning. Good morning, Nikki. Good morning, Simi. Uh, we certainly don't want to lose sight of the fact that w- Remembrance Day is just around the corner. I know we're talking a lot about other holidays that are coming up, but certainly Remembrance Day is incredibly significant. It is something that we should acknowledge, and we'll be acknowledging it in a very different way this year because people won't be able to go out to their local cenotaph in droves, and we won't be able to encourage people to go out to their local cenotaph. You know, that's right. usually the conversation that we have, isn't it? Get out there, make sure that you are showing your support for veterans by gathering on Remembrance. Day. We're not doing that this year. Things are going to be different. People will be watching ceremonies online, much like what we saw yesterday with No Stone Left Alone. Big ceremonies happened across the country, but they were all sort of virtual ceremonies that were happening online, and people were encouraged to Turn on their computers instead of go out in public right. and, and witness the ceremony.
1: But there's other things you can do too, right? Like I had wanted want of the one of those um, kind of poppy face masks that the oh, Legion's up. Yeah. But man, they sold out fast, and so the waiting list for them is so long. And it looks like they're not going to have them back in stock until next week, anyway. But there are other things that we
3: can do and buy, right, to support veterans. Yeah, that's a great example of a a tangible way that you can support veterans by purchasing something off the Legion or purchasing something from a veteran-owned business. You know, this is something I think that we don't think of a lot, and that's why I was excited to find this website byveterans.ca. Essentially, it is a directory of veteran-owned businesses all across Canada. You can Check out what's happening here in British Columbia or, you know, if you're listening to this in Alberta or Ontario, they have businesses all across the country that are owned by veterans and then highlighted on this online directory. So it's byveterans.ca and go to the website website look in your region, and it's likely that you'll come across a veteran-owned business that you can support, that you can hand your money to if you need to buy some goods or you have some services that need to be taken care of. And particularly, I noticed, on Vancouver Island is where Mm. a lot of these veteran-owned businesses are. So if you're on the island and you're looking for any number of of things, you know, you can check out this directory and hopefully you'll be able to employ the services of a veteran and give them that really tangible support by actually supporting their business. Well,
1: that's such a great idea. So all you have to do is like kind of Google that, right? Say by veteran?
3: Yes, exactly. And the services, it's such a range. I mean, I'm looking at the website right now, Irene's Bakery in Victoria. So you know, here you have a bakery, and that's owned by veterans Island Home and Garden on Gabriola Island, John's Photography in Souk. So the, the spectrum is very wide for the different services that you know, you could possibly take advantage of, there's even a wedding design company in Penticton that's owned by veterans called Joyful Bits, uh, key rehabilitation services in Kelowna, all across the province. And again, a very wide range. So, yeah, the, the website again is buyveterans.ca and certainly worth checking out.
1: I know, I'm doing it right now, actually wondering how I can do this. As soon as you suggested it, I thought I should check this out. But there's all, you're right, there's all sorts of things. There's consulting, there's restaurants, there's bakeries, there's, you know, you name it, home inspections, even. You could do that. Mm-hmm. This is a great, this is like something that we should
3: just keep in mind all year round. Yes. And I think it really highlights as well that veterans aren't just a poppy that you wear on your chest. Yes, thank you. That veterans are living among us, that they have businesses, they have families that they need to support and continue to support after their service is done. And we need to acknowledge that and support them in a variety of different ways, more than just dropping a dime in a poppy box. I love it. All right. Thank you so much for that, Nikki. Thanks, Simi. So please do check out the Buy
1: Veterans campaign online. It's got a whole host. Just type in British Columbia there out of the provinces, and they've got a long, long list of veteran-owned businesses that you can support all year round to make a difference because we can't necessarily all just gather on Remembrance Day today to show our support that way. This is a great way to help, you know, 365 days a year. So try. please do check that one out.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Let's talk about a mandatory COVID vaccine. This is something that we have talked about for months and months. And if you'd asked people back in July, which many polling companies did, something like 72% of Canadians said that they were supportive of a COVID-19 vaccination being mandatory for all Canadians. Now that question has been asked again several times, and the most recent results are a little different than that. So we're going to talk about that this morning uh, with the help of Carolyn Jarvis, our global news chief investigative correspondent. Carolyn, thanks for being here. Yes, hey, Amy, nice to be here. Thanks. So tell me about these numbers. How
4: have they changed? Well, uh, you know, what we looked at across the country was what's called vaccine confidence. When a vaccine is available and approved by Health Canada, and that's a crucial piece, not just ready by the pharmaceutical companies, but given the rubber stamp of approval and safety by Health Canada, will we or won't we take it? And 54% of Canadians, which may be a surprising number to some, Mm -hmm. said yes they would, but only 22% of those people felt very strongly about it. And when we ask people about concerns over long-term side effects, more than 80% of Canadians said they'd rather wait to see what happens. So there is concern over the pickup of this vaccine, and that all ties into notions like herd immunity and whether enough people will take it. So one of the other aspects of that is whether or not we should just say heck, it's mandatory. You want to live in Canada? You've got to take this vaccine. And 61% of people said it should be mandatory, which is to say that Roughly 40% of people did not agree with that statement. Uh, but there is concern around the vaccine. And because it's being developed so quickly, a lot of people are hesitant to say, whoa, will there be enough time to fully assess what could be long-term side effects? Should I be injecting this into my body and in the bodies of my children or not? So we we dive deep into that. And we've got um, stories coming out over the next 24 hours.
1: Okay. And I understand that, like, you know, also when a vaccine does become available, you know, health officials have said they want to make sure that the people who need it the most get it first, like the more vulnerable populations. How do Canadians feel about that?
4: Um, I, I didn't gauge numbers on that. The numbers we were looking at were around whether or not people would take the vaccine and what their sentiments were towards it. So um, on Global News' current affairs show, The New Reality, which airs tomorrow night at 7, there's my shameless plug, on Pobble, <laughs> uh, we assemble a town hall of Canadians across the country and, and you know, we put the ask out for responses from Canadians, and I got to be honest to me, you know, I've been doing this a, a while. <laughs> I was floored. Really? Floored by the response. We're talking thousands of people responded to our outreaches on Facebook and on our website. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people. It's a, it was a flood of response. And what that told me was that this is a lightning issue for people, that they feel really hot about whether or not they're going to take this vaccine, which is interesting because. Essentially, our country and the planet is on hold (laughs) in lockdown mode, waiting for this very vaccine. But, you know, it's Achilles is the fact that it's happening so quickly, and yet we need it to happen so quickly. Um, The question is, is is it going to be rushed? That's the concern. We spoke with pharmaceutical companies. We spoke with Health Canada. Uh, You know, they both reassured us that no corners are being cut here and that normal regulatory processes are being followed. Um, but it's fair to say the Canadians have concern and we need to hear those concerns. That's really the biggest right. thing. And the polling we did for Ipsos reflected that.
1: All right. We're going to hear more about it then tomorrow night. Thanks, Carolyn. Thanks, Annie. Carolyn Jarvis, Global News Chief Investigative Correspondent over the next 24 hours. If you check out globalnews.ca, you will see more stories about this. So they've teamed up with Ipsos Public Affairs to ask Canadians uh, how they feel on the issue of a mandatory COVID vaccine. As you heard Carolyn say, the numbers have dipped a little bit about that in terms of how supportive people are. In July, 72% of Canadians said, yes, they were all for this. But in September, it's 61%.
0: This is Mornings with Simi. You
1: know, we're kind of dealing with 2020 now, and it's taken a long time. Here we are in November, but we're getting used to this idea of living in this pandemic situation. It just seemed like it was so long ago, though, that we didn't have to think about all that. But it was this year. Think about back in February, where you were probably reading the news about what was going on in China, but hadn't really probably started to worry too much about what was going to happen here Well, imagine being there in China, just as the harshest parts of the lockdown were about to happen. That is actually what happened to Canadian journalist Ethan Liu. He was overseas uh, for family reasons, and then, of course, everything started. And he joins us now to talk about the book that he's written about this called Field Notes from a Pandemic. Ethan, thank you very much
5: for joining us. Simi, hi. Top of the morning to you.
1: Now, I know, Ethan, that you already knew COVID-19 was kind of going on when you went to Beijing, but you had to go there for family reasons. Your grandfather was dying. But when did you realize that something else was going on?
5: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I realized that, I think, as soon as I landed, because I, I left Toronto at a, at a really, um, it, it was a really opportune time because while I was in the air, that was when the epicenter city of Wuhan was sealed off. So I, I feel like I, I had crossed the threshold there. And and when I landed that was just a totally different world. And if you can picture this, there's a there's a long barrier after the baggage claim exit. So there's a long line of people all leaning on the barrier. They are the friends and family waiting to receive the travelers. So they're all looking at you. And this time they're all wearing masks. It was like a sea of a sea of faceless faces, and and this was before we all started wearing masks, so it was quite jarring, and to think just 14 hours ago, I entered the plane in a normal world, and I just exited the plague, and, and the book details how just everything escalated from there.
1: You tell the story as well about your grandfather. Tell us a little bit about him, why it was so important for you to get there to see him.
5: Uh-huh. So uh, his health had been deteriorating for for the past year it's been particularly bad and there was a there was a point of time in which my father he told me uh, in these exact words to prepare a dark suit mm. so um and despite everything on this trip i i feel lucky to have went to china when i did because that was when the seniors residents they banned all the visitors so I was literally kicked out of the residence while I was there and, and I can never forget that scene because, uh, well, while my grandfather has very severe dementia, I think there's a better part of the brain that takes in the emotions uh, of everything. And, and I'm sure he can feel the tension in people's voices, the heaviness of their footsteps and the cold emptiness of the residence because, um, as I was getting kicked out, I was holding his hand and I was letting go and, he just held on with all the strength mm. that he could muster.
1: Oh, Ethan, that's so sad there. What happened in that area where you were then? What was the lockdown like?
5: Yeah, it, it happened really quickly. And I think once Wuhan, the epicenter city, was locked down, it just spiraled to the whole country within a couple of days. And that was also Chinese New Year, which is like Asian Christmas. So it, was a, it was a very big celebration. And it happened in the middle of all that. And so, the, the the city where my grandfather was in, that was like that was like a suburb of Beijing. Uh, so while we were dr- driving back to Beijing after that, there were already checkpoints all around, and and it eventually it got to the point where people, if you want to leave your apartment complex, you have to get uh, the equivalent of a permission slip from security. And the entire city was empty, and I and God about. A week or two of that uh, uh, with my uncle in his apartment.
1: Right, and you traveled elsewhere too after that, didn't you?
5: Yeah. So and so that's the thing about the 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 early days, and I I don't think anyone really had any sort of prescience about this. And so after China, I went to Singapore, and Singapore was perfectly all right at the time, and I felt quite lucky to be leaving China behind. And in Singapore, the government was actually telling people not to wear masks and there were no deaths. It was a very peaceful world and at the time it was peaceful in Canada as well. And then, then after that, I went to Germany. So that, that was where I spent my childhood. And, and when I landed in Germany, that, the land was all right as well. Uh, there was no pandemic. And uh, uh, they were still holding soccer matches with tens of thousands of fans. Wow. And, yeah, no, I'll be the first to say that I did not expect this virus to just engulf the world like this uh, back in March.
1: It's a fascinating story that you tell, too, Ethan. Were you glad to get back to Canada? What was it like when you got here?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I think I was, I was really glad to, to get back to Canada because, uh, as, I, as I write in the book, I, uh, in Germany, my, my, my trip back, it got, it got disrupted at least three times because of the pandemic. And, and on the day that I left Germany for Canada, it, it was also disruptive, but not for pandemic reasons, uh, not for pandemic reasons directly, but it was like a Kafkaesque thing. And uh, it was definitely a harrowing journey back. And I, I felt definitely relieved to arrive back in Canada.
1: Oh, well, Ethan, it's a fascinating book. Thank you so much for joining us to tell us about it this morning.
5: It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: That's Ethan Liu. The book is called Field Notes from a Pandemic. Found himself in China just as the pandemic was like really kicking in there and the lockdowns happened. And then he was continuing on with his trip and found that the lockdowns were happening everywhere he went. So fascinating. Look at how it was dealt with all over the world. Once again, it's called Field Notes from a Pandemic.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Premier Doug Ford in Ontario announced on Twitter that his government will be introducing legislation that will ban any employer from preventing an employee from wearing a poppy during the week of Remembrance Day. And this has all come up because of Whole Foods. Nikki Rybmeier joins us now to talk more about this. Good morning, Nikki.
3: Good morning. I truly applaud Doug Ford, because that has been a very, very swift response. You yes. know, earlier, he said it was disgusting and gr- disgraceful that Whole Foods has banned poppies, and now he's moving towards legislation. So kudos to him, because that is very impressive and a very swift reaction to what is an, out- an outrageous story. Uh, you know what? It's one of those stories that leaves me speechless,
1: because I wondered... What was this probably one person at Whole Foods thinking to do this, not realizing that, oh, man, if this gets out, this is going to make us look bad and
3: we are in for a storm of hurt because that's what they're in for now. Absolutely they are. Whole Foods sending out a memo to staff saying that wearing a Remembrance Day poppy is not allowed because it conflicts with the company dress code? I mean, what were they thinking? It's no surprise that this has been blowing up online, of course. I saw a lawyer in in Ontario and Toronto say, this is insane. I will arrange for free legal defense to any Whole Foods employee in Canada who's harassed for wearing a poppy. There's also an Ontario mp named alex ruff and he's a retired colonel so he's a veteran himself and he said as someone who has served in our military to defend rights i won't argue with whole foods decision to ban employees from wearing poppies i'll just never step foot in another whole foods store again that's the thing right that is the
1: thing there like you can say that yes it's their right to do that but what are you saying to your employees about what they are allowed to do Mm-hmm. And it's certainly
3: the employees right then, isn't it? To Absolutely. wear their poppy on Remembrance Day in turn. And I know uh, Conservative Party leader Aaron O'Toole has been pretty outspoken about this as well. Again, a veteran himself. And he addressed this controversy this morning. Here's what he had to say.
6: I was outraged to see Whole Foods is not allowing their employees to wear a poppy. They say it's part of a cause.
7: Wow. The freedom they have to be that stupid was granted by the
6: sacrifice of of thousands of Canadians, and that's why we show respect with the poppy. So I'd like Whole Foods to stop trying to be woke foods and do the right thing.
2: Show respect, lest we forget.
1: Self-inflicted wound here. I can't believe it. I know we're running a Twitter poll on this too, aren't we?
3: Yes, we are. We're asking people online. Whole Foods says poppies don't comply with their uniform. Should companies be allowed to ban the poppy from the workplace? 10% of the vote said yes, it's their choice. 64% 64% of people said, no, it's up to the individual. And then about 25% said, only if they pose a risk, I guess, depending on what your job may be. Right. So here we have the overwhelming majority of people and no surprise saying, no, it's up to the individual or, well, right. if it poses a risk, then perhaps they can intervene. But a very small percentage of people, 10% saying that, yes, it's it's okay for a company to ban wearing the poppy because it's their choice at the end of the day.
1: And I understand the 25% saying, only if it poses a risk. Because when you think about what if you work at a manufacturing place or, you know, a food processing line, an assembly line or something like that, Mm -hmm. you can't be wearing a poppy in case it falls off and kind of gets in, you know, that'd be dangerous. Uh, But Mm -hmm. other than that, if you work in an environment where that's not an issue, yeah, I mean, let the employee decide this is not something a company has to get involved in.
3: Yeah, it was funny. Actually, someone on our Twitter poll added a comment and they said you should put one more category below that. Add one more category that is only if they want to lose customers, then yes. <laughs>
1: yeah, again, self-inflicted. Aren't you? I'm always amazed, Nikki, I'm sure you are too, at when it comes to something like the Poppy and Remembrance Day, how so many just companies just seem to put their foot in it every year.
3: And self-inflicted wound is the term you keep using because it's so accurate in this case. This is something that is so easily avoidable. They could have said nothing on the matter, but if they really wanted some good PR right now, they could have put out a policy that said, we encourage all employees to wear poppies. And then this conversation we'd be having right now would be totally different. We'd be applauding them for doing something instead of talking about how they've screwed this up and how they've, you know, really stepped in it as they absolutely have here. And,
1: and they've let it go. They
3: haven't said anything either, which is the other thing about this.
1: You
0: think somebody would get on I front think of that'll this. that'll change. Oh yeah, that'll
1: <laughs> yeah. change today for sure. Nikki, thank
0: you. Thanks, Simmy. This is Mornings with Simmy.
1: As you've been hearing, there are some major developments in the presidential elections south of the border this morning. You may have gone to bed thinking everything was the same, but overnight, you've got Joe Biden now leading in the very critical state of Pennsylvania. And in the early hours of the morning, flipped Georgia into his column right now as well. So what about these legal challenges that Donald Trump says he's going to be launching or says that more are coming? We thought let's check in now with Thane Rosenbaum, who's a professor of law and a CBS legal analyst and joins us this morning. Thane, thank you for being here.
6: Good morning, Simi.
1: What is the kind of legal um, policy that they're going to be taking or the strategy that they're going to be taking now? Because it seems like things are really shifting.
6: Well, Simi, there's sort of two tracks. Uh, The first track is to try to identify uh, actual acts of fraud, abuse, uh, glitches, technical errors that were ignored, that should have not been ignored, uh, and that if they weren't ignored, the ballots would have been invalidated. Uh, these, these are actions in, in around five, or five different states, all basically around the idea that there's either a technical problems with the ballot that were ignored or that the election monitors refuse to allow uh, Republicans to observe the ballot it's, to see because remember this is like did it get was it signed properly was it dated properly um uh did they use a middle ceiling envelope some of these you need two envelopes to uh, to use it's not just one you put it in a ceiling envelope and then in another one right well if you, if you didn't use the middle one right and you could just say well what's the difference the voter intent is clear yes except the rule does say you need to use both right so th- those are what one track is the other track is the one that's, presently before the Supreme Court, or is hopefully, from the point of view of the Trump campaign, expedited before the Supreme Court. And that has to do with the extension of the balloting altogether. Was that constitutional? Yes, there's a corona uh, problem. Uh, Yes, the U.S. Postal Service is running very, very late, and some states extended the deadlines. But under the American Constitution, it is only state legislators who are given the power to create election rules of time, place, and manner Mm -hmm. for federal elections. No one else can do it, just them. So that, you know, if you're a law student, you're going, wow, this is cool. (laughs) It's a real legal constitutional question, right? It it might not seem very interesting to most people, but that's that's a question. The founding fathers said state legislators. They never said state courts. They never said state election officials, state legislators. So the constitutional question is, was it permissible for state courts to rewrite the election laws without the legislature changing it. That's a separate track, Simi, yeah. which I happen to think is the stronger track. And the reason for that is because the Trump administration really hasn't come up with really any good evidence yet of the fraud. Right. And that's what
1: I was going to ask you, is that it seems to me the couple of times that they have attempted this fraud allegation, they've kind of been kicked out of court.
6: Yeah, yeah. They've said it now several times. They told us all these things that were going to happen. Nevada was the 10,000 people who don't live in Nevada purportedly voted. Well, that's pretty serious, right? Mm-hmm. The people don't even live there. That's, that's true. But they, were, they, were, they never produced that evidence of those people. Um, and so the similar things in Pennsylvania, uh, uh, monitors fixing the defects. Right, looks at the ballot, fixes the defect, or calls up the voter and says, Hurry up, get over here and fix your ballot. Right. So those are very serious irregularities if it were true. But it doesn't appear that in each, in several of the cases, judges have literally said, We haven't given us any proof of this. this is just pure hearsay. And until you do, uh, there's no reason for us to alter this outcome.
1: Okay, so that that tactic doesn't sound like it's working. Uh, but the second tactic that you talked about there, does, is that the one that you think we're going to hear more of?
6: I do. Uh, I do. Now, remember, Simi, we, I think, look, I may be one of the few legal analysts in the United States that's really focusing on this, because others are not so much. So I, I could be wrong. <laughs> but But I think this is something that's important because... One of the Supreme Court justices of the United States, Justice Alito, as well as Justice Kavanaugh, as well as Justice Thomas um, and, uh, and possibly Justice Barrett, that would be five justices, except for Barrett, have already weighed in and said that they think that it's unconstitutional for states, courts, to have changed the election laws. So it's as if the conservative justices have already told us what they think. So if this gets to the point where they take the case, if Justice Barrett votes with them, it would be five to four, which is exactly what Donald Trump was projecting when he insisted on bringing uh, Justice Barrett to the court. As If he knew this thing was going to be a razor thin case and he wanted to know, he kept saying there's no way we can go into the election season with eight judges because then it could be four to four. So it's it's almost Shakespearean, right? That you actually put Amy Coney Barrett in the exact seat that everyone feared. Um, but how successful? Constitutional-
1: you just you just said yeah. though that it, it technically, according to what you said, it shouldn't actually reach the Supreme Court because it's a it's very clear in the Constitution who looks after this.
6: Yeah, well that well it reaches it it reaches it because it would require the Supreme Court. To issue a ruling like they did in Bush v Gore to stop the county right right but Bush v <clears throat> Gore was so, one state Very good, you're quite right. That's a big difference. This shows you why this is a bigger deal, right This is six yeah. states and the, and it's not it would roll back the votes that came in late on all of the states, right all the states that did some variation of what Pennsylvania did. And since these are razor-thin margins, it mm-hmm. could literally switch sides. So all of a sudden, what Biden won is now a Trump state because those states were disqualified. Here's the thing, Simi. <clears throat> the Supreme Court's going to need to see that if they rule, the, if they rule as what you're, you and I are just saying, it's, mm-hmm. it's unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional, does it make a difference? Are there enough votes in each of these states where that they would have been Trump votes or rather Biden votes, right. that would now be taken away. The Supreme Court's just not in the business, business of an academic exercise, right? So they're very unlikely to take this case unless they can be convinced that there is a critical mass of votes there that would yeah. absolutely change the outcome. If not, they're not going to take it. So I think that's part of the problem also. We're not fully done with the votes yet. Right. Here's the other thing. Alito, Justice Alito, warned, he was the one that said, you know, we should really decide this now. I mean, he, he, if they should, you know, he literally said, why would we wait until it's too late? Let's decide this matter now. But the court decided on procedural grounds to let the deadlines extend and then they'll figure it out later. That was probably a mistake. But but um, but the the real question, again, is Alito did wisely say, please segregate the ballots. Meaning, make sure that you don't commingle them. Make sure that you put the ones that come in after election day aside. And that's not what they did in Michigan, which is why the Michigan court, you literally said yesterday, I don't know what to do with this. The ballots are all been commingled. How will we know? How can we find them? And they've all been counted. No- They're done. Exactly. Right in Michigan, they've been counted, so and they all got tossed into one box.
1: Um, right. Thane, this just tells you, though, about the, this kind of strategy. You wonder if they hadn't, they should have been more ready for it, I guess, right, for what was going on. But anyway, Thane, we're all out of time. Thank you so much for your time this morning.
6: En- enjoy talking to you, Simi.
1: That is Thane Rosenbaum, and I'm sure we'll be talking to him again. He's a professor of law and a CBS legal analyst uh, talking about the legal avenues open to the two camps uh, because it is so close in these few states that are left.
0: This is Mornings with Simi.
1: Well, we knew that the job gains that we had been seeing over the summer would kind of taper off as we got into the fall, but we're starting to get an idea of what October looks like as the numbers are out this morning from the Labour Force survey. So let's break them down a bit more with the help of Ken Peacock, who's the Chief Economist and Vice President at the Business Council of BC. Ken, thanks for being back with us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Can we start with BC on this one here? Because I've heard the national numbers in the news, but how is BC doing?
7: No, you know what? To me, it was a good report for BC. Um, the, we actually got thirty-four thousand jobs in October. It's so a somewhat of a slowdown from September, where there was more than fifty thousand jobs created. But September was a, a surprisingly big bump. So, uh, my my read of a, a thirty-four thousand gain in October, uh, given the circumstances what we're facing, I, I think this is a, a fairly healthy read. Uh, that's the top line number. There are some pockets of weakness uh, when you kind of dig into the details, but but overall, I, this is kind of well ahead. It puts BC well ahead of where I would have thought we were going to be in October. You know, looking back really? from yeah, from a March April vantage point, yeah, things are, things are pretty good here.
1: Okay, so then what is the unemployment rate for BC, and how does that stack up with other provinces?
7: So we're eight, we're eight uh, percent, and it's down from eight point four percent the previous month. It's still, it's still a comparatively high. A jobless rate where compared to where we were, you know, a year ago for Mm BC, Um, sort of middle of the pack relative to other provinces the weakness, the weak spot in the report, and it's been a story uh, in this recovery generally, is that the full-time, the number of full-time workers in the province is still down sharply. And what we've seen is a rotation towards more part-time employment. So Mm. reflecting back again from February, the total number of full-time workers is down 100,000 still, but part-time employment is up almost 40,000. So um, it, look, it appears as though you know employers are hiring people back on a part-time basis, just given the circumstances and the environment we're in. Uh, but still, uh, overall, I take it as good news.
1: Okay, so where are the strengths and where are the weaknesses, though, in the economy?
7: Yeah, this 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 is where it gets interesting. There's there's still you know it's very uneven uh, across the different segments of of the economy, and and if we look uh where they, by by industry where we're getting jobs. What really stands out right now is professional, scientific and technical services. That's a category that is capturing computer kind of jobs, um, information, exchange, technical service, professional services, accounting firms are, are busy, and it's not it's not with uh, bankruptcies, it's it's with job expansion and acquisitions and and, and other things. And uh, this has really been quite a robust area and employment in that segment is up. Uh, quite healthily from February levels. We're seeing recovery in um, information, culture, and recreation sector, which is capturing the movie industry. That industry getting back up and running really has helped provide uh, a lift to jobs. And then, just quickly, I'll mention healthcare. We we saw a big jump in the number of healthcare jobs in October, um, eighty five hundred. Wow. Uh, so that alone accounted for a quarter of all the jobs uh, in October. So we can't got to pay attention to that. I think that reflects some of the hiring activity for you know COVID tracing and, and whatnot. So that bump was clearly a factor in in the overall good read of the October job numbers report.
1: Okay, so when you look ahead, though, Ken, do you see some things that you're going to be keeping an eye on for November? Uh,
7: you know, it's I, funny, Tim. I keep waiting for the overall employment growth picture to kind of slow down to maybe five or ten thousand a month, but the last three months, it's it's held up. So, uh, as I said before, pleasantly surprised on the upside. Yeah. But I, I do continue to wait. You know, we're facing some uh, shutdowns, and if you look across the other provinces. The job picture is not, the job growth picture was not nearly as rosy, and in some instances that was because of tighter restrictions and, you know, some parcel closures in some provinces and some areas. So if we move into that space where we got our shut things down to some degree, that right. will dampen this job growth story. Um, and, and then the other, the other dimension that's very fascinating and interesting is the, the differences across the, the regions, the metros versus uh, the more rural area, areas of the province. Quite a, quite a dramatic difference in, in the job performance there.
1: Yeah, in what way? What do you mean? So the, the Metro Vancouver, uh, we
7: saw job growth this month, but overall Metro Vancouver employment is still down 10%. Uh, from where it was in February. And that's 100,000 jobs, essentially. And this is because in Metro Vancouver, the, you got the concentration of the hard-hit industries, you know, international tourism, cruise ships, uh, air travel, and the, the whole hotel sector, so there's a high concentration in Metro Van. So, yes, yeah, that's been hard-hit. But if you get outside of the metro areas, um, into the smaller rural, smaller communities across the province, altogether employment in those in communities is actually up, and it's up quite healthily. And a factor there, of course, is the, the resource economy is doing reasonably well here in B.C. We saw a jump in forestry jobs. We also saw a jump in manufacturing jobs this month. So the, those, those are flowing to, like I said, the, more, the smaller communities across the province. And then, of course, we cannot overlook the large infrastructure projects, pipeline, LNG, Canada, sightsee those are definitely providing sort of a a base of support for economic activity uh, outside of the metro regions in B.C.
1: All right, all right, fascinating look at it. Ken, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Ken Peacock, Chief Economist and Vice President at the Business Council of B.C., breaking down the unemployment numbers that just came out in the October Labour Force survey this morning, and as you heard him say, for B.C., he was pleasantly surprised.